Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello, welcome along to episode 10 of the Howie Games. Great to have you on board as always. Now this week in Australia, we're about to go into the Melbourne Cup Carnival, which is highlighted by the feature race, the Melbourne Cup, otherwise known as the race that stops a nation. Who better to get on board this week's episode of the Howie Games than a jockey who has won the cup twice, Jim Cassidy. Jim has a Reaper book out at the moment. It's a great read, Pickle. It's called Pumper, Jim Cassidy. How would you know it's a great read, Big Penguin? You can't read. That's a solid point you make there, Pickle. I did like the pictures, though. Check out Jim's book now. You can get it in all good bookstores, crew. And don't forget to subscribe to the Howie Games. Please. Like now. Like where? Now, it must be said, I'm not exactly a horse racing expert. My first foray into the Sport of Kings was years ago with Channel 7 when they sent me out to interview a jockey by the name of Greg Childs about his dual Cox Plate winning horse, Sunline. Not being an expert, I started off with a really easy one. So, Greg, tell me a little bit about him. His response, mate, he is a she. Yeah, it didn't go so well. But you don't really need to be interested in racing to be interested by Jim Cassidy. Jim's a little man with a huge personality. And you'll hear in this episode of the Howie Games, no topic, and I mean no topic is off limits, whether he's talking about winning the Melbourne Cup a couple of times to rolling around literally in $100 notes, corruption, underworld figures getting banned from the sport, coming back and achieving all sorts of wonderful highs. Jim says it how it is. The Pumper, he's a funny, friendly and fiercely loyal fella. Get hold of his book, The Pumper, Jim Cassidy. It's a beauty and so's he. Enjoy. Oh, my Jaja, tell me why Won't they open up their eyes They could help out if they try, try, try If they would try, try, try Welcome to the Howie Games, Jim Cassidy. Jim, this is a treat for me. Uh, we had a couple of days chat uh, a few days ago about your book, Pumper, which I read last night in one sitting. Exceptional, mate. Congratulations. Thank you. Gee, you must be a freak to read it. You're a speed reader. Well, I went through it as quick <laughs> as I could and there wasn't many pictures in the uh, in the softback variety, mate. Let's start at the start. Yep. You uh, grow up in New Zealand yes. and uh, referring to the book, you're either going to be a jockey or an all black. Yeah. <laughs> Come on, Jim. Yeah. Who are you kidding with the all blacks? <laughs> well, you have dreams, eh? Yeah, that's it. Uh, look, I, I, I'm glad it, it fell the other way. But look, I did love my union. I actually came to Australia in 1974 to play rugby union right. as an 11-year-old. Um, look, I, I love my footy. Obviously, after footy, we used to go to, to the races. We may even go on a Friday night. Mum and Dad would pack up and... Take the six kids that we had at the time and six. Yeah, I'm well, one of seven. Right. Yeah, one of seven. So what was life like? I always at home? said they should have stopped after the fourth one. That was me. <laughs> <laughs> you were the best of the litter, you reckon? What, what's I don't life, know about that. What's life at home like uh, in New Zealand with a big family like that? Yeah, look, it was obviously not always peaches and cream. Dad, mum, and dad sort of struggled. Um, what job man do? Uh, he was an upholsterer by trade. Uh, he'd do that doing Newman's buses, but like any sort of bus work. They used to fit the seats out in them. Uh, and then Dad would bring a lot of his work home in respect of doing hot rods, pulling lounge chairs to pieces, even these chairs that we sit on. He could pull these to pieces, re-upholster them again, and they look brand new. So right. we used to help Dad do that in my younger days. Uh, and then obviously when we got the opportunity, school holidays, uh, my first pick was, bang, away to the stables. Why? What was the fascination? Oh, I just loved it, you know, the, the smell. Uh, 
it, it, it's in the blood. Dad was ne- Dad never rode and never really had the opportunity to venture out into it the way I did. But he still loved his racing. We'd go to the races, as I say, and we'd spend a day there picking up tickets after the last race, find a few bob. <laughs> <laughs> so was it because people fall in love with it? From what I can see, for for two main reasons: it's either the horses or the punt. What yep. was it for you? It was a little bit of everything okay. because it was. It, I love being around them. I love working with them. Um, all animals are different, but to get into a horse's head when you eventually become a jockey and become part of one, we're only there to stare them and, and try to put them into the right gaps and be patient and get them into a rhythm and this sort of thing. They do the rest. Mm. And for them to be able to do that with us little blokes sitting on top, pushing them and tapping them with these little padded whips we've got now, uh, it, it's a great thing to be part of something you love so much. So were you always a little bloke? Obviously, when you're trying to play for the All Blacks, you've got designs of being a bigger fella because you would have been the smallest All Black in the history in of the world history. rugby. But was that a genetic thing? Because obviously that's a key to being a jockey, mate. Unless you're sort of the Nick Hall type, you need to be a little fella. Oh, you've got to be. And and for weight, as I said, I never sort of done a lot of strenuous work to build up weight but you've still got to be quite strong, mm. obviously, to be able to control the horses. So were you small at school? I was, always, I was always small, yeah. Right. I was probably the smallest uh, pretty much in every class. Okay. Uh, all the way through school, but that didn't worry me. I mean, to say I had one dream, you know, there was the, the ambition to, to be a footy player, but from my size and everything, it was always just heading straight to the races. You would have been whippy, though. You would have been whippy out on the rugby field. Obviously. Yeah, I, I, went right, I went all right at half back and five eight. Oh, I, I bet had, you uh, did. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. I loved it, though. I, I still love it today. I think you would have had today. a bit of chops on you as well. Yeah, the old chops kept going. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet they did. I bet they, so when did you first ride a horse? Can you remember when you first jumped on a horse? I, I do. I, I actually put it in the book. There was a, a little pony called Daphne when I went away to a chap called Peter McLean's stable, and he had this little pony there, and... He kept, I remember him turning around saying to my mum, oh, look, he'll ride the pony for a fair while. I thought, bugger riding the pony, I want to get on the big boys and, right. get, and get going. So it was always there, you know. I had a little burn around on a pony, but then all I wanted to do was get on the bigger ones. So how old do you have to be to ride in a race? In New Zealand, I got licensed at 15. Right. Um, probably the first couple of months because I was so little and so light. Uh, it was more the horses taking me everywhere than me trying to <laughs> you take them. Yeah. So you're still at school at that stage? I had finished school. I couldn't right. wait to get out. I, I turned 15 on the 21st of January. So coming up to Christmas, I obviously finished school. And So that was it. I'm going to be a jockey. That was it. School. I was out of there. Right. I used to go to the headmaster's office trying to get a detention, sit down and do the form with him. <laughs> <laughs> so then I didn't have to do schoolwork. <laughs> and, and the Melbourne Cup at that stage as a young bloke, we obviously, I can remember growing up, um, you're a little older than me, but bang, Melbourne Cup Day, yeah. I grew up in Sydney, but bang, it'll be on the television. What was the situation in New well, Zealand? Same thing. I, I used to take a push bike to school Yep. and on every Tuesday in November and when it come two o'clock, I'd, everyone would go for a little bit of a play lunch, as they'd call it back in those days. Mm. I'd be on the bike home ready to watch the Melbourne Cup. I'd have three quarters of an hour to get home, and it used to take me 40 minutes on the bike, so <laughs> I was sitting up there watching it. Did you come back at the after the Cup? No, that no. was it. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> so your first competitive race, can you remember the horse and the track? I do. I, I rode a filly, a filly called Ruahini Lass. Um, it was quite funny because I was sitting at this race meeting at Wairau, where we were in New Zealand, mm. and I hadn't had a ride up until this day. And my boss said, oh, you better take your gear. If you know one of our jockeys get hurt, I'll, I'll give you a ride, only because I was probably a little bit too weak then. Um, anyhow, I'm, I'm sitting up in the room, and this gentleman comes in, and he goes, oh, mate, he goes, you got a ride in the next? I said, no, I haven't, mate. He goes, oh, okay, so he threw me the colours. 
So by then I thought, gee, I haven't had a ride. I better go and check with me boss that I can ride it. Yeah. So down I go out of the jockey's room, out to the car park where it was a little bit of a picnic meeting. He come up. Anyhow, the gentleman come back. I said, oh, this is me boss, Patrick. Uh, I'll ride your horse for you. He goes, oh, good, son. He said, uh, how many rides you had today? I said, oh, no, I haven't had one. I said, this will be my first one. Today. And then he said, yeah, yeah today, like, be first ride today. He said, how many you had all together? And I went, uh, uh, haven't had any. <laughs> so he actually took the colours off me and said, you can't ride it. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was another jockey who got hurt later in the day and actually a chap that by the name of Alan Pringle, he had a horse running the Melbourne Cup called Dandelith. Right. A Kiwi horse run second. He gave me my first ride. I think out of pity, seeing that I was so excited to get that first one, I only had it for about 30 seconds. When he knew I didn't have a ride, he took it off me. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you go on your first ride? I run fourth. Okay. Yeah, so that, that was a good starting stone. And were you in the gates? Oh, not nervous. I was just so excited okay. to be out there. <laughs> you know, wow, my big day. And it was like a little wee picnic meeting anyway, but we all start somewhere. So how did you start to progress and how did you get on more horses and start to have a bit of success back at home? Yeah, well, I, I went something like, from that day when I had my first ride, I went something like 60 to 70 rides before I actually rode a winner. And I got beat Might and Powers, Doremus's photo finish in the Melbourne Cup about nine or ten times throughout them next 60 or 70 rides I had. What were you doing, Jim? Oh, I just couldn't get one over the line. Right. Couldn't get one over the line. And, and the older jockeys then kept saying, oh, don't worry, it'll come, son, it'll come. And then the following six months, I rode 124 winners and was leading apprentice. So it just clicked? It just clicked. Things fell into place and opportunities come, got on the right couple of horses and the ball started to roll on. So who was the first winner? I rode a horse called Tarleton. Which, I love that you can remember it. Yeah, uh, it was trained by my boss, uh, Patrick Campbell. was on our home track where we trained. And it was owned by his father. So it was a, a, a quite sweet first yeah. winner, you know. It was, never forget it. I haven't got any photos at home on the wall, to be honest, but I've got that one. Right. 104 group ones, there's not one of them up. But the first winner. The first one. So how old were you at that stage? I was 15 and a half. Did you have a hot chocolate or something to celebrate, or what did you do at 15 and a half? Oh, pump snuck out the back and got a cold one in, don't worry. <laughs> the pump snuck out the back. I snuck out the back and got a cold one in, I thought, how good's this? <laughs> 15 and a half. So then you got on a roll, you started riding winners, so how did you end up for your first ride in Australia? Did you ride a winner first ride in Australia or not? No, uh, actually I did. We come, I come to Australia in 1981. Right. I rode a horse called Four Crowns in Brisbane. Okay. And not many people would know this, but this that was my first Group 1 winner in Australia in 1978. First round. Uh, what did I say? Uh, 81, 81, I beg your pardon. 81. 81, yeah. And it was four crowns. He was coming over for the Brisbane Cup, and he only had the two runs. He ran the O'Shea Stakes the week before, which is the lead-up to the Brisbane Cup, at about 33 to 1, and he won. And then I come out the following fortnight and won the Brisbane Cup, which was my first Group 1 winner in Australia, 1981 wow. on four crowns. Did that start to change things for you? Well, it did because I'd gone from the Shaky Isles mm. to Australia, the big scene of racing, mm. which was always a lot bigger, prestige and, and, and money-wise compared to New Zealand. And, and to win the Brisbane Cup, I, I can remember it clearly. I can see coming up the straight, me and Malcolm Johnson fighting out the finish. And he was the uh, the boom boy in Australia at the time, riding for TJ Smith. So it was a great thrill for me, yes, to win the Brisbane Cup at Group 1, but to beat the mighty Malcolm Johnson too, which was uh, an amazing thing. This is Melbourne Cup week when this will be played, and it's such a tremendous week of the year, the whole Melbourne Cup carnival now. And I was looking back on YouTube, um, 
with you on Kiwi, 983? 83, yeah. When did you first lay eyes on Kiwi as a horse? I seen him race at a place in New Zealand called Wanganui. Wanganui? Wanganui. Okay. And it's a long way from Flemington on the way. first Tuesday, Ooh, isn't it? Oh, my word it is. <laughs> you need more than a packed lunch to get there from <laughs> here. I bet you do. <laughs> and I seen Diane ride him and big chestnut, lean looking thing, looked like he needed a feed because he was that big and lean. Mind you, he was getting plenty of that on Snowy's farm. And and that was where he kicked off. He was back last over 13.50 and just seen this big chestnut flashing home down the outside. And I said to me boss, oh, I've seen a nice horse today. I wouldn't mind trying to get on him, which is not really even back then the thing you want to do is getting under some other jockey's neck. But mm. uh, I, I just thought, look, he's worth getting on. So I rung Snowy and he said, oh, look, I'd lo- I'll leave Diane on him for another run. Well, unfortunately, he runs second again. And then uh, Snowy goes, oh, I'll let you ride him. You can have a ride on him. So I jumped in the boss's V8 charger, me, four foot nothing, grabbed six, six, six cushions off, off his couch, <laughs> put two of them behind me, three of them so I sat on, and the other two I had to get some blocks so I could reach the pedals. <laughs> and off I go to ride Kiwi. Well, it was probably a seven, eight-hour drive from where I was living. Right. Yeah, all the way to ride him, and he was in the last race. 1,200-metre race, his last all the way, flashes home, once again gets beat a nose. Right. And then after that, it, Snowy obviously stepped him up in distance and then he won and he sort of went win, third, fourth, through that middle part of his career. And then obviously when he stepped up to open company, he was amazing then because he went from our, our top race then, grading-wise, was a, was. Uh, class one. Mm-hmm. So you more or less start class five, work your way through to class one. Class one horses are horses running the Melbourne Cup and Caulfield Cups and whatever. And he had won a class three race. So he was still two grades away from the top. And Snowy had his hometown cup called the Waverley Cup where he lived. He goes, oh, I think I'll run him in the Waverley Cup. And I'm thinking, gee, don't do that because if he wins that, by the time he gets to class one, he's going to have too much weight. Mm. Cut a long story short, he runs, he gets 54 kilos because it was quite a weak race. So he probably got four kilos more than he deserved. And blow me down, he comes out and wins it by four lengths. Four lengths. Four lengths, a class three horse winning this class one race. Right. So the riding was on the wall then. Uh, and then obviously he stepped up to, to better grade cup races. Um, I won a Hawke's Bay Cup on him, uh, obviously the Wellington Cup, which is – I was very confident then because Wellington – Racetrack is pretty much the same circumference to Flemington. You, you've got the the chute where you start, where Flemington, they start up the straight and Flem- Wellington's got a little bit of a chute. So it was the same sort of circumference that he was able to do uh, when he won the Wellington Cup, come from last on the fence, have to get through a 23 other runners. Um, so that really gave me a lot of confidence coming to Flemington on that Tuesday, first Tuesday. So you come to Flemington. What's, uh, what, what's Kiwi paying? It was 11 to, 11 to 1. It was 11 11, to 1. pretty much 11 to 1 when the okay. betting came out, and he was at all the way through. And uh, did you bet on Kiwi? I did have a little bet, yeah. Right. You know, jockeys aren't allowed to bet back then. That no. was back in 1983. But Maybe having a punt on behalf of your old man or something? Yeah, that's it. That's what I was doing. Now I remember. That's what I was doing. <laughs> I thought that's, that's why I read it in the book, Pumper. <laughs> so we had a little sneaky bet, and uh, actually a couple of gentlemen that come over with me, Rod Croon and Dave Johnson, they had they had a won, won a lot of money. It was great. They won a lot of money. They said, "What are we doing?" I said, "Just stay in the queue till the gates open. Just keep putting it on," and they did. So 
Uh, 11 to 1, they said Kiwis couldn't fly. He was able to fly, that big fella. Before we get to Kiwi flying, a preparation for a big race like that, and again, if people need to get the book, Pumper, because it's a ripping read and it opened my eyes to a lot of things. Me, jockeys, and when I've dealt with them, and you've, you've worked really hard to get your weight where it needs to be, etc. going the night before the Melbourne Cup, and yep. I had a chuckle when I was reading this last night, that I'm thinking, well, Jim's at home, he's sweating it out, he's having a couple of lettuce leaves, and then That's bang, it. he's ready for the Melbourne Cup the next day. Probably didn't pan out quite like that back in didn't, 1983, didn't the Monday night. not quite work out that way, no. No? I'd be down at St Kilda Bars. Sweating it out, sweating doing it, the right sweating thing. Sweating it out, doing the right thing, very, very dedicated. And I'd done me a couple of hours down there, which I, I like to do. Um obviously very thirsty after you finish that. So I jumped in my cab, back to the park roll, and it was about 10 to 7 at night, roughly, and I walked in, and actually the night before the Melbourne Cup, the bar's chock-a-block. Mm. Little bloke like me, the 10 deep. So I've sort of pushed my way to the side, tried to get up on the fence and tried to wave <laughs> to the barman just behind me there. Get up on the fence. I said, uh, I said, mate, two crown lagers, please. And he looked at me because I was sort of half jumping up to see over the end of the bar. I got the two crown lagers put there. Scaled the first one, didn't touch the sides because I'd been in the sauna, as I said, sweating. And then I went to finish up the second one. The bloke tapped me on the shoulder. He goes, aren't you riding in the Melbourne Cup tomorrow? I said, yeah, I are, mate. And I said, uh, hang on, let me finish this. I said, it'll win too. See you later. I'm going to bed. <laughs> and it did. And, and it, it did. And it did. So what, it did. Are you, what are your memories of that cup day? Because as I said, looking back on YouTube, the caller, who called it that day? Clem Dimsey. Clem Dimsey. In the last 400, Clem didn't call it till... You came from nowhere. He didn't call it till you're way past the clock tower. Mm. Oh, I was well inside the clock tower because yeah. I think Noble comment, Mr. Jazz, Kiyamare, and here comes Kiwi. So what's it like going out through the parade ring and out through the Rose Garden when there's a ma- – you know, it's the biggest race in, it, in it this is. part it, of the world. For a jockey, to be one of the 24 to be in the race is a massive feeling. Just parading, getting on, going down the race – cantering up the straight to the 1,200-metre start where it all starts, that is electrifying to be one of the 24. If they say they don't get goosebumps doing that, uh, there's something wrong, you shouldn't be out there because it is electrifying. Mm. Um, to compete in it and win it is I, – I love it today. The way I'm talking is if yeah, I'm getting see. ready to go and yeah, do it again Saturday, you know. Um, it, jockeys must be honoured. They must feel honoured to do that. Whether you, if you're a golfer, to play in the Masters, you, you might get one opportunity to do it. You might win it. You may not. But to be at the Masters, I, I know every golfer would say an experience of a mm. lifetime. And that's the same with the Melbourne Cup. Um, that feeling never goes away once you've had the taste of it. It's making me smile just thinking about it now. Yeah. So, so it was always going to be from the back of the field. And this is the thing that fascinates me. How do you know? So I'm not a real racing person, mm. Jim. How do you know when to go? And then physically, silly question, but how do you make the horse go? Yeah, look, it's that's what I get mentioned in the book, which is I'm very pleased that you say this, be, not being a, a real racing no. person, to see the other side of what you're explaining. Y- you've got to become one. Um, it's all timing. You obviously can't be, t- uh, you can't be born with that. You've got to learn it. And if you learn it once, don't forget it because it's too hard to get back. It's... In cars, you know, we have brakes, we have indicators, we have rear vision mirrors. Mm. On horses, we have none of that. So it, it comes down to, to timing, to feel, to rhythm, um, to pace, tempo, whether they're going fast, slow. And then you've got to put all that into perspective and ride a horse the way that it, it needs to be ridden, as in such. Might and Power used to like to lead. Rough Habit used to like to be three quarters of the way back. Kiwi used to love just getting out the back, 
plodding around. <laughs> when he was ready, he'd switch on. His ears had – I think if you look at the Melbourne Cup at the 600, he still had his ears pricked. Most of the others had their tails sticking straight out, trying to suck in big ones, and here's me old mate just plodding along behind them. So it's picking them up. Come on, mate, let's get going. Come on. He's not ready yet. And then all of a sudden, once I straightened and started to move him in and out coming between horses – that's what gets the adrenaline going for them. You're getting the momentum going. You're asking them to change direction. And as you're doing that, you're still asking them to accelerate. How? How are you asking them to accelerate? Just forward motion, going with them. If, okay. you, if you must pick them up and go with them. As they're lengthening, you're pushing forward. So it's all getting them to lengthen. And if you're not doing that, they're obviously, A, not going good enough uh, to be competitive. But it's all timing then, and the big thing in any race to win, whether it's the Melbourne Cup or a race at Bendigo or, or wherever it may be, is all momentum. You can't run into the back of one mm. and, and stop that momentum, especially when they're coming that quick after two miles or at a mile and a half even, even a 1,200-metre race. So it's, the, navigate, the navigation part has got to be spot on. You make one mistake. Uh, and it, it's the difference of winning and losing. There goes your momentum. There's, there goes your momentum. So at what stage are you on Kiwi thinking, I'm in this race, and how does it go from there? Yeah, look, once I straightened and I started to come up the inside and then I can still see it sitting here, I, I pop <laughs> out probably three horses, then I pick up sort of three lengths and I sort of half have a look up and all I can see is that big frame on the outside of the track, the clock tower, and mm. I knew I was sort of still 80 metres from it. So I'm starting to angle out again. I'll pop out behind another one to come to the outside. And by the time I get to the clock tower, I'm actually on the outside of every runner. So I've got 180 metres, just under 200 metres to the line to have one real last crack. And he just picked them up and put them down. He was actually going probably three to their one, which was incredible to do that at, at the end looked, of two that's miles. That's how it looks, though. For mm. every step they take, he's taken two. Yeah, exactly. And they almost look like they're going up and down the one spot. Mm. They weren't. They were... Still finishing off. They were still great horses. Kiyomare, Noble Comment, Mr. Jazz, all those great horses that Tommy Barton and and um, Neville Begg and Colin Hayes had in that cup that year. And you hit the line. When does it change you as a person, as a jockey? When does it you've won the Melbourne Cup? And I presume life changes once you've won the Melbourne Cup as a jock. For sure. Look, I was 20. Uh, <laughs> 20. I was here with two good mates, um... I was here on a horse that I had never, ever been so confident. I mean, so I hadn't had a big future then. I'd only been, I was 20, I'd only been riding five years. But to be that confident in such a big race, um, I say all the way through the book and in, in, in all the great horses, I was lucky enough to ride. Back the horse's ability, back the trainer's ability and back your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was the big thing. Uh, talking to Roy, getting them a couple of little things off Roy. It wasn't disrespect saying, I'm going to be last, I'm going to be last. I knew I was going to be last, but that kept giving me, watching the expression on his face, confidence knowing that, gee, he thinks he can do it. He thinks he can do it. And I could get that vibe back from Roy. Mm. And, and all those little things you've got to take into, you've only got a short time to do it, three minutes, something, uh, 18, 24, whatever it is. So the decisions you make in all races have to be the right ones, but... The confidence was always the big thing going into the race. 
do you have a moment when you get back to the jockey's room? And the, the, the bizarre thing to me is always you won the premier event and then you might be racing in the next straight, race. You know, straight like, away in the next race. Which is bizarre to me. Yes. You've just won the pinnacle and it's like, right, <laughs> yeah. go and saddle up again. And we saw that photo this year of, or last year of Michelle Payne just sitting in, I presume it was the jock's room, just yep. looking at the Melbourne at Cup. At the Melbourne Cup. Do, do you have a moment where... Where it hit you for the first time, but was it still in the track? It, it did that, that year. It did that year because I didn't have a ride again after the cup. I was finished. Right, perfect. Um, and it was beautiful. I, I went in. I can remember washing my face, standing in the shower, thinking, "I've just won the bloody Melbourne Cup. <laughs> can I believe this?" <laughs> and they can't take it away from you. It's just there. It's like getting a tattoo. It's there. It's there. Yeah, it's amazing. How did you celebrate? Obviously, there was the collect. There was the collect. Then we. With my two friends, obviously the VRC had asked me to attend the the Melbourne Cup dinner, and the last thing I thought was I was going to be invited to a dinner. I thought me and my two mates, Dave and Rob, we're just going to go out and have a few and uh, have a good night. Oh, Dave and Rob, <laughs> yeah, Dave and Rob. <laughs> and then I ended up doing um, the Daryl Summers show, uh, Hey Hey, hey Saturday hey. night. So they between oh, because that used to be on after the cup, after didn't the it? cup, of course. Yeah. And I laugh looking back at the video, 53 now, looking back when I was 20 on this Hey Hey It's Saturday Night with Daryl Summers. <laughs> it was hilarious. <laughs> it was hilarious. But the good thing was they gave me a bottle of champagne in the, in the limo going to, to do the show. Had a couple of those and uh, I was a little bit relaxed by the time I got there. But um, what a week, what a day. Uh, it's been there for the rest of my life. And did you roll around in aforementioned cash? I did that, that. That was a good story. Did I had you to, truly do that? I did? truly did. Yeah, I, I, I underbelly style. Underbelly style. Rolled in <laughs> cash at twenty. Pumper was rolling in money. <laughs> I got I got the grey nurses, the hundred dollar bills, oh, the big cha- changed into twenties. <laughs> so and me, and me mate out. said, "What are you doing that for?" I said, "I'll show you." So we got back to the hotel room. Pump took all his gear off, got the Melbourne Cup whip, tipped all the money on the bed, <laughs> and for one hour I was literally just rolling in cash. <laughs> That's a great story. That's a great story. How good is the pumper pickle? He is on fire, Pengy. Coming up next week on the Howie Games, Michael Clark. Wowzers, pickle. Has an old mate Clarky's book caused some controversy. We can't play you a preview today because Daddy is interviewing Clarky tomorrow. Maybe we could do the interview instead, Pickle. How hard can it be? Not sure at that level just yet, Pengy. I reckon I am. I reckon you're kidding yourself, Penguin. Back to the pumper. <laughs> There's another Melbourne Cup and a lot of highlights to come, but we're just sort of going through in a, in a general um, order of your life, I guess. And there's a chapter in the book that's entitled The Jockey Tapes. I, I knew nothing about The Jockey yeah. Tapes. Even when you came in here to Triple M a few days ago, I was I was having a quick look on the internet to see what The Jockey Tapes were. Um, you, you've gone from the ultimate high. Describe it to me, Jim, because the way I've read it in the book, there was a few people involved and you were – well, what were you accused of, Jim, I guess is the best way to start this? Tipping. Is uh, it right talking about this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's all in the book. Yeah. It's all in the book. Which yeah, is was, why it's it, such a good book. And Yeah. Well, I've, I've been honest. Yeah, I, I, if you're going to do an autobiography, put the truth in mm. there and, and let the people see the transcripts, which I've been quite open to do, the, uh, the racing club and whatnot, give me all the all Which the is great in the book because which you see the good. official side and then you hear your side, which it, makes exactly. it a really good read, Jim. And it, it gives everyone a chance to have their opinion. I, I thought I was pretty hard done by. I, I put my hand up in the book and said, 
said, yes, I was guilty of tipping with this gentleman. So, um, so, so tell, uh, give me the background on what you're accused of. I was accused of uh, tipping for financial gain. Right. So, so giving tips to a punter. To a punter. And then he would give you and cash And then back. he would give me cash back if, if they won. That's right. what I was accused of. Yep. And then also there was allegations of race fixing that were on the tapes, which was proven that it was all baloney. Uh, so you never fixed a race? No, never. No, definitely never. Is it possible to fix a race? Nearly impossible, really. It seems to be a lot of moving parts. Yeah. Look, there, there's always the, the accusations, the innuendo, mm. the street talk. The pub talk, mm. uh, oh, that was dead, that race, yep. or Jack Cassidy was dead on that, or whoever it may be that they, they're trying to accuse. That'll always go on. That goes on in rugby league. It goes on in every, every sport you hear today, cricket, whatever it My may word, be. It does. It's all there. Um, but though I was cleared of all those charges. They were never proven. Um, there was no allegation. There was no proof that it was there. Chief stewards looked at all the races. They even say in the book that those races that I was – uh, mentioned of trying to to fix were races they should show apprentices because they were great rides. One of them drew 16, carried nine stone. I sat three wide on it and still got it home. Pump lifted it. Right. Then there was another race where Nermi was at Canterbury, was back last in a seven-horse field, come down the outside and won by four lengths. So the accusations were wrong. Um, there front was, page, front page news. Oh, back well, fr- page news. It was, I was so, every day for probably three weeks. How are you dealing with that as a as a bloke? That every time you leave the house, I presume the press was there, etc. Oh, it's got to be pretty stressful. It, it was. It was. Uh, there was more press than there was uh, blue sky in the sky. Right. So um, how did you cope with that? Look, it was hard. It was hard because when it all blew up, the hardest part was these allegations were a year ago. What was said. So mm. then them tapes come out because. Mr. C was was being interviewed or being looked at by the police, phone taps and whatnot. So they were tapping so his phone. They were tapping his phone, and I happened to be on that phone. And Mr. C was the bloke that, in theory, you're giving tips to. To Mr. Okay. Yeah, Mr. C, as as in Victor Spinks, which is in the book. So who uh, was Victor Spinks? He was the one charged of the uh, of that I was tipping to. Was he a colourful character, as he, they say, he, in the racing was, identity? He, he was a colourful character. Okay, very much so. So did you know this? No, I didn't. No. No, because I hadn't been introduced to him by another fellow rider, uh, which is in the book, and that's how the association came. And that's when I sort of say that, you know, it, it was tough, it was hard to handle because I didn't know what was going on there. And then, obviously, once it all got put into perspective, mm. I had to be at this inquiry and that inquiry and things started to go more pear-shaped because I was subpoenaed to the High Court couldn't get to the AJC, the racing hearing. So I was still in court. This is all happening, unfolding the night before the Golden Slipper. And all of a sudden I get an envelope uh, from the race course detective at the, uh, at the, at the, uh, at the courthouse, mm. opened it up and said that I'd been, uh, I'd been disqualified for, for 12 months for not att- attending an inquiry. This was the night before the Golden Slipper. And you were at the High Court at the time. And I was still at the High Court, which I wasn't allowed to leave. And then my horse came out and won the Golden Slipper. I talked to, to John Shrek, the chief steward at the time, asking for a stay of proceedings. He told me I had no right of a stay of proceedings and hung the phone up. And the horse won. The horse came out and won. And then this all happened again the next over the next week or two. And then I was finally given five years. Five years. For what? For bringing racing into disrepute, for tipping to Victor Spinks. And that was pretty much it. So with the tips, get out on the table, when you gave him tips and they won, 
did he give you a sling back? Well, I didn't. Uh, th- that was the whole drama because nothing sort of really happened. Uh, the innuendo was going on. The the talk, me talking to him was going on. What was on the phone, but there was uh, th- was always promises, and that's why the whole thing ended up being as sad as it was. A for racing because it put racing mm. in a spotlight that it certainly didn't need. We want racing to be in the spotlight for the good things, not the yeah. bad. Um, and, and yeah, it was was a debacle, hard part of my life, but we're able to punch through it. Coming my, out the other my side. My word, my word, you did. Which there's still another Melbourne Cup to come. So you've obviously punched through it, all right? And about another eighty Group Oneers at that point. <laughs> are, are you in the proceedings when they say five years? Yes. Oh yeah, I went to the hearing. I was sitting there. Yeah. So, what's your thought when whoever it is, the chief steward, chief et cetera, steward, says, yeah. "Jim, you're out for five years." Yeah. Look at. Blew my head off. Did it? Um, well, you're a young bloke from New Zealand. That's all you've ever wanted to do was race horses, and then yeah. you can't for five years. Yeah, can't. You're disqualified. Can't socialise with racing people because they're obviously licensed, and and you're not. Um, but yeah, look, they were they were tough days, dark days. Did you cry? Uh, oh, I had a few tears for mm, sure. I yeah, bet. I, sure, I surely did. At home, not in front of the cameras, no. but inside, I was bleeding. It was hard. So what happens from there? All of a sudden, you got to make a living. Yeah, exactly. So I went out and done a bit of labouring and had a few mates that uh, I would borrow a car off because I, I sort of pretty much had to sell everything with legal fees and, and, and trying to fight my way back as to clear myself for these charges. What do you think you put in legal fee-wise? Oh, Rough well, guess. I sold a house for just over half a million, sold pretty much everything else that and, sort of went out the window. And this is in the 80s. Yeah. Oof, that's a Early lot 90s, money, yeah. Early yeah. 90s. So that's a, that's a lot of money. Mm. So you're now so, you're doing a bit of labouring. Yeah, just doing something is. to keep food coming on the table and, and keep the kids at school. I had to obviously took them out of private schools and that. you just got to uh, handle the situation the way it is and, and, and cut back, scale down and, and uh, survive the way that you have to. I mean, to say you, you're used to going well and then all of a sudden, different perspective. You've got to get out and do the hard yards again. You're obviously a really positive fella. Um we don't know each other very well at all, but in the first two times I met you now, you come in with a big smile on your face and you're jumping around and say good day to everyone. How, how, did you keep that attitude through that and how did oh, you do sure. that? Oh, for sure. Yeah, look, obviously, I'm not going to sit here and lie. I, obviously, you do get bitter and angry and all those things. Um, one thing you can't buy is your health mm. and you can't buy laughter. Mm. I've been able to, I've been able to, <laughs> do, I've been able to do them all for 53 years so far yeah. and I want to keep doing that. You know? Money's not everything. Happiness is, health is and... My word, laughter is. It's a good perspective to come from when you've at at an early stage. What are you, twenty five at this stage? Yeah, you're twenty five and you've been covered in money, literally, as you said, and then you mm. got no money. It's, yeah, it's a good. Well, I started with nothing. Yep. You know, I was when I won the Melbourne Cup in '83. I was getting eighteen dollars a week. I just won the greatest race in the world. Eighteen bucks a week. I was getting eighteen dollars a week. They were my wages, working seven days a week and getting half a Sunday off a month. Wow. So uh, I've. It's not that. You want everything. You, you can't buy, as I say, happiness, health, and laughter. So I've been there, done it. I've been up, I've been down, all the way through, as we've talked about. Mm. Um, so to put it, I, I love to laugh. I love to be with people because you can't buy that. Well, a lot of blokes, once they got smacked like that, probably wouldn't get back up. But you didn't have to do the full five years? No, I, I didn't. I didn't quite understand yeah. this in the book. Well, that's what I didn't understand. It, it was such a big charge. Mm. Um, it just seemed to, to melt away. Well, it always does. When there's headlines, I mean, so I, I think... Kerry Packer and Rupert Murdoch owned the two papers in Sydney and they had Super League going on at the time. Oh. 
Well, Super League was flat getting on the front page because Pumper was on it every day. <laughs> Ring-a-ding-ding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ring-a-ding-ding. Is this going to sting? <laughs> yeah, my word. My word. So what happened? And you get approached and how long did you have to sit out for in the end? I, I done just on two years. Two years, By the okay. time I got back. And that was the thing that frustrated me. And I, I put that in the book that if it was such a big crime, why did I get five years? And then all of a sudden, why did they let me back after take three years away and, yeah, and let me do two? This, I had to read this a couple of times. Well, I've read I, it three times and I still couldn't really work it out. Well, you wrote it. So. And, <laughs> yeah. you know, and I'm still reading it to find out, did I miss something? Mm. Or, or did three years fly past me and I didn't realise? So when you come back, are you person non grata within the racing industry or is there a few blokes lend you a hand? I presume also at this stage you learn who your true mates are. Well, that's, well, that's the first thing you learn um, because of all the drama. A lot of them run like... Uh, whatever you want to call them, yeah. um, tail between their legs and off. But they all slowly came back. They all slowly came back because Pump let them come back. And You did? Oh, well, I did, and they, they let me come back too. It was mm. a two-way thing uh, because you've got to come back to racing, and all those people are still involved in racing. But did I have the same respect for them? No. No. They end up being hypocrites, a lot of them. So another very special horse comes along. Um you know, I'd love to sit here and do this for four hours, but unfortunately we don't have the time for that. You don't have the time for that. Another very special horse comes along. Tell the listeners of the Howie Games who that horse was and, and how it all took place. Yeah, look, he he was a freak, uh, the big horse, Might and Power. Um, Even a great name. Yeah, great wasn't it? Great name for a racehorse. Mm, the Might and Power. Might and Power, what a name. And a name that suited the horse. And it suited him. He was big, bold, aggressive. Uh, he was out there. He runs through a glass window. He runs through a brick wall. Uh, but the best thing he could do was run fast on a race course. Yeah. He was amazing. <laughs> um, to be part of that, to, for a jockey, there was me, Brian York, and I think Johnny Marshall might have been the only three people to ride him in a race. To feel that power, like, between your legs, you're sitting on top of a an elephant and, and I'm a pea. Just to feel that power, that strength, um, the acceleration, the ducking and weaving, and he was a bit like a a good footballer, he could come off one leg and back onto the other and, like I said about Kiwi, pick up speed. Um, he used to pick him up, put him down like nobody's business. I, I won a two-win race on him at Canterbury and he give me the feel then, and I say it in the book, he just had Caulfield Cup written all over him uh, on a, a tight circuit. He was going to be on speed. He showed me at Canterbury that day that he could lead and fight back under pressure. He was a three-year-old taking on three-, four- and five-year-olds. So to do that at three against the older horses, more seasoned, tougher, more experienced, he was able to still put them away then. So he, he gave me the twinkling then that he could tick all the boxes. There was only a couple of boxes to tick and my word, he ticked them pretty quick. Yeah, my word, he ticked them real quick and won mm. some enormous races. We go to the Melbourne Cup. So what year Melbourne Cup are we talking now? 97. 97. Take us to the last 50 metres. You're on Might and Power. Is Greg Hall's on Greg Doremus? Hall's coming at me on Doremus. Take it from the clock tower, Jim. Give us the last 200 as you recall it. Yeah, well, look, at the clock tower, I'm still probably two lengths in front and I've just got just starting to go for the whip. I can feel he's just starting to get a little bit tired with the big weight on his back. So when you're in front, 
do you know who's behind and how far they're behind, or are you just looking directly ahead and not concerned? How does it work? When I was riding Might and Power, yeah. they were always behind me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you're just looking for the, I'm the just, post? I'm, I'm more looking for the post. I, I can hear the race caller as he's saying something's coming out after Might and Power. Am so, I, so that's how you get an idea. Well, this is what I'm, I'm still listening, focusing. I'm trying to... Be like that. What's her name? Bewitched or genie? Try and move that winning post towards <laughs> yeah, me, yeah, yeah. Um, and then I can hear the crowd. Like as we're getting closer to the line, inside the last hundred, I can hear the crowd roar. And I don't know whether they're roaring for might and power, or whether they're roaring because they can see something, something coming, coming because I can't. Um, as we get closer and closer inside the fifty, the roar's getting bigger, and I can really. And then I spot this little chestnut nose coming out of the just out of the corner of my eye and then next minute he's out half a length outside me three or four strides from the line he's directly outside me head for head I didn't even look across I just kept whopping and head down looking forward and when we went to the line and I looked across and seen Hawley put his hand up yeah, and waving, waving to the crowd and I didn't know who was waving to someone on the 10th floor or the or the commentator up on the top of the box I didn't know, I, I obviously thought he had won the race doing that so I thought to myself, oh, I've done all the work in front. He's done everything right for me, the big horse. He's relaxed. He's lengthened when I've asked him to lengthen. He's given me everything he's got the last hundred, and all he's got me on the line. So I continued a couple hundred metres after the line, which we do in the cup, and I looked at Johnny Letts, who gives you the interview after the race, whoever's won. I looked at Letsy. I said, what number's in the frame, mate? He said, three, you've won it, you've won it. <laughs> and I just thought, oh, my gosh, here we go again. <laughs> and I feel sorry for Hawley, but yeah. to, to run, to celebrate like that on the big stage, he's the only one ever to do it, to be so happy to run second in the Melbourne Cup. It was beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> so is it any different when you went second time round? You're, oh, you're look, older, you're wiser. Older, you've been wiser, through the lows of lows. Been through the lows. It was only that... 95, the jockey's tapes thing had gone. I just won the Caulfield Cup on the Might and Power. And Was it hard not to stick it up people that had kicked you when you were going down? Or did you just put that behind well, you? Well, it wasn't hard because I did do it to a few. Right. You've got, I, I got, you got a few. Okay. you got to do it. you got to do it. Yep. I mean, to say, they buried me. Hard not they to. said I couldn't come back. Uh, you know, there was allocations in the paper. I was going to jail and race fixing and all this sort of thing. So it was nice to come back and... Me finally had the cucumber in my hand, you know. It was good. <laughs> the cucumber. Yeah, it was good. To belt them with. Yeah. <laughs> the cucumber. <laughs> belt them with is what we'll stick to on the Howie Games. We're a family audience here, Jim. Look, mate, there's a few things that um, fascinate me with jockeys. I, I did a story years ago um, for seven um, with Danny Nicolick when he was on Mummify. Which Mummify, yep. Didn't get a run in the cup after it got injured. Um, he was he was partnering Johnny O'Neill. And some of the things I saw him to prepare for the race, and it struck reading your book that some things I don't understand. Rubbing, is it metho yeah, on your metho. body? Yeah. Well, any cuts or anything that you had. because It's a straight metho. Yeah, just straight metho. It, it doesn't, it, it's probably a bit like using tea tree oil. Okay. Very much the same. Does pretty much the same thing if you, because we used to wear. Well, a lot of them still do. They wear pantyhose under their silks okay. to tuck your race colours in to keep you all tucked in, right? Mm-hmm. And I used to get a lot of because I've had operations. The hairs grow back on your legs. Well, the hairs used to stick into the pantyhose. Right. And they used to annoy anything like anything. So I used to rub metho, and it would make the hairs on your legs stick down and not stick onto the pantyhose. Oh. Okay. And after that, I found any cuts, because you're in and out of water all the time, spas, 
any cuts on you, easy to infection because you're mm. you're not eating that well and your body's probably a little bit lower than most. Um, so I found it was great. It, it used to soothe the body. Uh, obviously, a lot of moisturiser later on, but just for the saunering part of it and cuts and bruises and even soreness on the body, I found it was great. You really wouldn't want to be lighting up a big cigar or something, pump, if you covered yourself. Or if the bloke that, thinks he's that, having a smoke. That happened a few times. <laughs> the whole thing goes up in smoke. Wooshka. A very short spell from the pumper. In case you missed last week's episode of the Howie Games, it featured five-time world motorcycling champion Mick Doohan, a good, rough, tough Aussie bloke who drinks... Fleur of milk. <laughs> it was, hey, we were pretty wild. We were, we were pretty wild, yeah, so if you drink enough of it, it's all right. Right. But yeah. that, that was generally the starting Right, that was the starting point, <laughs> starting was it? point, you know. Do you still have a Kalura milk today oh, or not? you know, generally, uh, generally, maybe on a Sunday evening, perhaps, <laughs> you know. Mighty Mick Doohan. If you haven't already, please go back and check out the back catalogue of episodes of the Howie Games and, of course, subscribe to us, give us a rating on iTunes and let us know at Mark Howard 03 on Facebook or Twitter. How you think we're going? What's good? What's bad? Maybe some suggested guests coming up in future weeks. All right, time to go back to the pumper. The other thing I guess that fascinates people um, is is weight. So what would your, what, you know, you're, you're a year out of racing now. What would you weigh now? Oh, I walk around about 56, 55 and a half. But I consistently, it's just being dedicated. To stay at the top, you had to do it, whether it was Melbourne Cup, midweek at Canterbury or whatever. So what do you typically oh, ride I'd, at? I'd take two kilos, two and a half, maybe three kilos off, fluctuate in a week, sometimes four kilos in a week from mm. riding, eating. Ooh. But whatever I put in, I burnt off. You worked out. Yep. If I had three beers today and a big leg of lamb or a steak or something, I knew that I had to work it off the next day because I always had a day in between. If it was a Monday, well, I know I'm riding Wednesday, so Tuesday I've got to really burn it off. So you could still keep sa- taking f- intake, food intake, but when the the, li- the rides were lighter... I would eat lighter food as salads or How light are we talking? What, what's the lightest you rode? Oh, I rode 48 and a half in a Cox Plate. 48 Blake. and a half. I rode 49 and a half when I won the Manicato on Reduced Choice. So how do you get to that? How hard is it? Is it physically or mentally hard? Because the majority of the people that are listening to this will never have and never will put themselves through that type of physical and mental torment. Look, there's nothing you can't do if you, don't, if you want to do it. So it's willpower? It's all willpower. Pain barrier, same thing. What if do you, you do when you're hungry? Uh, go and brush your teeth, go for a walk, uh, don't go anywhere near fridges, uh, don't walk past shops with cream cakes in them. <laughs> it's, th- that's the whole thing, keeping occupied, keeping busy mentally. And what about when you're really dehydrated? Dehydrated, I'd... Because that's got to be hard. I, I even took the toothbrush to the races a number of occasions just to give the old mouth a bit of a wash, can't swallow because that swallowing one tick can stop your riding. That's it. Well, uh, Simon Marshall once told me a story about having the water bottle beside his bed but having a pinprick in the top of the Schweppes lemonade yeah. bottle, just a pinprick so he and could only... Only have it get so much. Yeah. It's true, yeah. Dedication. Have a, have a squig round and, and sometimes even have to spit out, you know. But that's dedication. That's If you want it, it's there. The, the, always, the world's your oyster. If you want it, go and get it. Is it hard to do and how does it make you feel when you're right, hanging right on your limits to get to a weight? Yeah, look, it's hard. Um, I, I can recall sitting here that when I had to ride um, Grand Marshal in the Sydney Cup just before I retired, I wasn't on him. Joe Marrera was going to ride him and then he didn't ride him, so Waller gave me the call back to ride him. And he only had 51 and a half. I was walking 53 and a half, so bang, I had two days to lose three kilos. 
and it was just willpower, mental. I wanted to do it. I wanted to be there. I wanted to ride him in the race, so I'd done it. And I come out and won the Sydney Cup. So how do you retain your strength? Like there's 600 kilo animals hoofing along. You've had bugger all to eat or drink, as have some of the guys around you. How do you retain the strength to... Oh, it's just willpower. It's, Is all, it? it's all mental. So you've never had problems pulling a horse up because you cooked. You hear sometimes the jockey say, oh, oh sometimes you do it. You're pretty exhausted. I, I, the day in a flurry took off with me in the Caulfield Cup, I was exhausted. I couldn't stop it in the race uh, from going too quick, and it probably cost it a Caulfield Cup. But in saying that, the exhaustion after a race is obviously the dehydration, the, the fighting the finish out. You're trying to suck in the big ones, and your tongue is stuck to the top of your mouth like the bottom of a birdcage. <laughs> all you want to do is get some fluid in there. Um but it's all willpower. It's all mental. All the boys do it. They've all done it for, for big races and, and still do it today when they can't win. Like the horse is in a race that is going round out the back. They're still doing their best uh, and yet they've still done the three hours and, and lost their two kilos. Tony Mockbell, infamous in here where we are recording this in Melbourne um, for all sorts of things. Um, Gangland Wars, going up to Bonnie Doon and the wig and getting caught out. Your name was associated with him. Um, and again, reading your portrayal of it, you were tarred by the same brush. He'd been up to no good and people associated the fact that you knew him, yep. that you were also no good. So we like, were you tight with Mockbell? Was he an acquaintance? Like, How, how do you look back yeah, on look, that whole thing? Was... I, it probably cost you a bit, I reckon, reading your book, reading yeah. your account of it. Yeah, Definitely. Yeah, look, he, I'd met Tony, uh, as a number of other people had been in his company and there was a lot of people in his company when I met him. Mm. Tony was good to me. Uh, I didn't know what Tony was doing in his background, uh, but I, I, I found him to be great with me. I, I say in the book where I had uh, barbecues and Sunday lunches at, at, at the family home, um, a lot of times Tony wouldn't even be there. Um, so my association with him was, was known. Uh, I was seen, I was photographed, I was honest about it. I had done nothing wrong. I, I was never charged with doing anything wrong uh, on the side of of criminal offences. Um, did it hurt your pump? Oh, well, it did, but look, that was just a chapter in my life, mm. you know. Um, we live and learn. Mm. Um, but look, that, they... I've, I've, I've got no regrets. They were good days that I, that I had with those people. I wasn't the only person... Um, associating with Tony, but my time with Tony in in that little scene, um, you know, I, I had no regrets. I was asked that, and I said, "No, nah, you can't turn the clock back." I had good times. It's been well publicised in the book. Uh, every time something came up in my racing history, they would say Tony. I was interviewed by a press chap one day mm. and said that he wanted to come and do a nice article on me, and uh, I even had my daughter in the photo with me. Uh, which I thought was a low act, and then he come out. He did ask me if I knew Tony. I said, yeah, Tony was a mate of mine. I, I did socialise with Tony. I wasn't going to lie when it had already been published. Mm. But then he went and put the headlines in the paper, my mate Mockbell, which was true because he was my mate. your daughter's in the photo a as well. And this was an interview, you know. So I, I, things like that were pretty ordinary. Yeah, I bet. They, they were pretty ordinary. There was no need for that. Um, he asked me. To elaborate on Tony, I said, well, I thought we were here talking about the Jim Cassidy side of things. So little things like that I was disappointed with because there was no need for that. Um, But as I say, look, I've got no regrets, mate. There were times, you know, I'd met George Freeman, I'd met Victor Spinks, I'd met Tony Mockbell. There was a number of other Mm. people 
that I had met in racing and so have probably three quarters of the racing industry. So that's why I say don't be hypocritical if, uh, you know, I was in the wrong place at the wrong time and they were mistakes that I'd made throughout my career. 104 group ones? 104. It's, so how many, was there two other blokes that have ridden? Roy Higgins and the great George Moore, two legends. Well, that is extraordinary company to sit in. Mm. Now that you've been retired for a year, have you had a chance to reflect on what has been a bloody amazing career? Yeah. Uh, because there's, I don't know how many jocks have ridden horses around Australia. Then I don't know how many have ridden group ones and won 10 of them or won 50 of them. Mm. But to be in the company of those two fellas you just mentioned, that is the elite of the elite. That's your top 0.1%. And congratulations for that, Jim. It's an yeah. extraordinary Thank achievement, you. mate. Yeah, look, I'm very proud. Um, obviously, I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you without my mum and dad. So, yeah. Um, I only lost my dad a couple of months ago. So Sorry to hear that. Um, it was a little bit hard the first day the book came out. He didn't really get a chance to read it, but he, he had a browse through it. So um, those opportunities that I got all the way through to be able to win the 100 at Flemington um, on a stage that a I used to watch on the lounge chair at home, uh, to think that could come true, not in my wildest dreams I ever thought it would. Um, to be 100 Group 1 winners, the third of all time in Australia to ever do it, Roy Higgins, George Moore, um, you can't get any bigger than that. And to think that the pump's name's there <laughs> is, uh, is is quite extraordinary. The Hall of Fames, um, New Zealand, Australia, what an honour. Uh, you've obviously got to work hard to achieve something like that. You've got to be nominated for it and you've got to be accepted for it. Uh, with all the highs and lows throughout my career, to be able to bounce back and to get into those two Hall of Fames, um, never never dreamed of it. Wouldn't it? If you had have said to me, mm. there's a million dollars, you'll be in the Hall of Fame one day. Or they said, I'll be going fishing. I won't be in any Hall of Fame. Um, and, and all the good rides that I had with the, the support of owners and trainers. Look, there's plenty I don't like in the book. I've said that. But I still had all them people help me at some stage. Whether they run away and didn't trust me anymore, well, bad luck to them, you know. Um, but I had one amazing career. Uh, I had a lot of fun doing it. And in a great game called racing. I mean, to say, uh, it was in the blood, still there. It'll be there till the day I die. The book is Pumper. You can buy it now. It's a phenomenal book. Jim, I, I always uh, always finish this. I've got two kids, a four-year-old and a six-year-old. Um, and I always tell them about who we're coming. Regular listeners of the Howie Games know this. I always tell them who I'm going to have a chat to. Yes. And then it's up to them to come up with a question. Oh, really? Um, so I've got the four-year-old who operates with a nickname, which you'll soon hear, and the six-year-old who operates with a nickname. They're into their names. So here is the question from my daughter, who is six, Jim. Hi, hi, Jim. My nickname's Pickle, and my brother's nickname is Big Penguin. Why is your nickname Pumper? Because I think it's a weird nickname. <laughs> this is from someone called the Pickle and her brother who woke up two years ago and changed his name to the Big Penguin. They were fascinated why you're called the Pumper. <laughs> that is beautiful. That is so beautiful. That brings that that brings back memories listening to my little girls. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. Yes, Pickle. Uh Jimmy got the nickname Pumper because of my riding style. Uh you'll see Jimmy pushing the horses out, as I've just said to Dad, asking them to lengthen. And that's where Jimmy got his nickname, the Pumper. He moves around on the saddle a, li- a little bit more than a lot of jockeys. <laughs> But uh, it's been effective, it's been successful, 
and I don't mind being called the pumper. The pickle will love that. Hey, Jim, the book is Pumper. As I said, I'm not a great racing enthusiast, but the one thing I will say is it's not just a sports book. It's about life. It's more than a racing book. It's an extraordinary story. And just to sit here and see you talking about what it means to you to win 100 Group 1 races mm. has really made me smile, mate. Thanks for having a chat with us in Howie Games. It's bloody been fantastic, mate. Thanks, Howie. Fantastic, mate. A really, real honour to be here. Thank you. Spot on, mate. Cheers. Ah, The Pumper. What an absolute beauty. Please check out his book, Pumper, Jim Cassidy. It is a fascinating read. Thanks to Jim for being so generous with his time. Thanks to you all for continuing to listen to the Howie Games. Please subscribe. Please tell everybody you know about us so we can get more people listening. Thanks to Michael James, our producer extraordinaire, who continues to get us to air. We will be back with another episode of the Howie Games next Thursday. Until then, peace. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener